Hello, and welcome back to the Haskin Cast podcast, where we're going to finish our review of Steve Jablonski's score for The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I'm here to finish my review doing the second half of the soundtrack for The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning, written by Steve Jablonski and released, I believe it was in 2006. Fantastic soundtrack. Uh, really showed me some sonic possibilities that I hadn't really thought about before. And, uh, you know, as much as I already loved Steve's music, this was just a, a nice addition to the collection. So we're going to get right into it. We left off with 10 push-ups, the very intense piece that was a throwback to the main title sequence. And now we're getting into Attempted Rescue. And to set the scene for Attempted Rescue, here's where Lee Turgeson's character comes in, the biker guy, and he finds out, you know, he's coming in for revenge and he finds out that uh, there's this whole thing going on and he tries to stop it. And I don't think it's going to work out well for him. the intensity continues. I just love it. And you know, this uh, is another part of a throwback to the main title. The very beginning of this piece is the same as the very beginning sequence to the main title. So again, a little bit of a theme and uh, kind of like uh, the main title working as an overture in this case, but it's a really intense piece. I love the cellos on it. They really keep uh, a heartbeat to the piece and uh, something that kind of sets the pace for your own tenseness and and, um, just uncomfortability as you're watching the movie. It's a really great part in the movie, too. Uh, Lee Turgeson is such a talented actor, and it was a real surprise to see that he was in this, albeit for not very long, but certainly um, a a nice surprise. Because like I said, I was in the last episode, I was a big fan of his work on Oz. 
seen him do a couple things since then. A uh, very talented actor. And uh, I believe his brother was was the music producer. I know he worked on Oz in connection with the music, but I can't remember exactly what he did off the top of my head. But in any case, a great piece of music really just continues along with the intensity and and certainly keeps you on the edge of your seat watching this movie. You you keep wanting someone to get away and to put a stop to all this, to stop the bad guys, but you know they're not going to make it. I mean, that's the one downside to a horror movie is that you know no matter what, no matter how they make you think somebody's going to get away, at best, if it's going to happen, it's not going to be until the end of the movie. It's just not. So, of course, if you're a killer, you know, you've killed people. What are you going to do? You got to do something with them. You have to prepare them. So here is the song Preparing the Victims. It sounds weird to refer to them as songs. I mean, they're really tracks more than anything else. But I'm so accustomed to saying songs. That's why I use that term. Um, But the track preparing the victims. What I find most amazing about this piece is that even though they're dead, they're passed out, they're unconscious or dying, um, there's really no rush to deal with these people. They don't pose any kind of threat to Leatherface. But at the same point, the music still has an intensity to what's going on. I love that because even when there's no threat, there's no danger, you don't expect any kind of surprises you know, nothing jumping out around the corner. There's no indication anything's going to happen. Not a shadow, not a light, nothing. It still has to have some level of intensity to it. I I absolutely love that about this piece. Um, I do want to point out something kind of interesting. Now, uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right. You guys know I suck at that. Andrew Briniarski, I believe is how you say it, was the gentleman who played Leatherface in both Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, and the actual Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot. He is a a good actor. He was in Any Given Sunday. That's where I knew him from previous. Of course, it took me a while to find out it was the same guy because you don't really ever get to see what the real actor looks like in this movie. Otherwise, I would have put it together right away. But he he was in Any Given Sunday. He was at a convent, uh, a convent. He wasn't at a convent. (laughs) He was at a convention in Tempe, Arizona. And uh, my friend Victoria had a table there. So I wanted to support her. I went out to visit her. I found out Linda Blair was going to be there. And I thought, you know, I would love to meet Linda Blair, which I did. Absolutely lovely lady. But 
Victoria had said to me, hey, aren't you a big fan of that Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie? And I said, yeah, I really liked it. And she goes, the guy that played Leatherface is right over there. So uh, he was like around the corner from where she was at. And uh, I talked to him for a few minutes. He, he was having a day. He wasn't in the best of condition that particular day. I don't really know all what was going on. So I don't want to speculate on anything. But he is very much a presence. I mean, he's a very big guy. And uh, he's got a really cool, deep voice when you hear him speak. Um, if you look at a picture of him and you watch any given Sunday, that's probably your best chance to see who he is. He had a couple scenes. He was the guy that had the alligator and played Metallica in the locker room. Um, that was him. But he has a really cool voice, too. It's, it's very deep. It's, but he's just a presence, that guy. And, you know, from what I heard uh, of interviews with different cast members, they said he was uh, he was great to work with. He was very uh, concerned with everyone's safety because he really had to throw people around and he was very physical, um, but he wanted to make sure that everyone was safe. And I thought that was really cool. Um, but from what I, I read, he did a lot of that work himself. That wasn't, um, you know, a trick photography or certain angles or whatever. I mean, some of it is because it has to be, but a lot of the work that he could do, he actually did himself. So he was very physically involved in the movie and and really was just quite a presence. I mean, just looking at him, he is a menacing guy. So they cast that very well. Of course, he didn't have to memorize any dialogue, but he had to remember a lot more action. So I'm sure it was a very challenging role just the same, but it was kind of cool to meet him. Uh, wish it would have been under better circumstances, but you know, you, uh, you take the opportunities in life that you get and you go with them. So uh, that being said, now that we've prepared the victims, the victims have to get discovered by somebody. There has to be a point where, you know, who the believed heroine is in the movie, who's trying to find her friends, her boyfriend, her husband, her roommates, whatever it's going to be. At some point in the movie, they have to stumble across them and find that their hopes of finding them alive and getting out of there together are crushed as they are either dead or in a horrible state of disrepair and not able to get out. And of course, then they make a bunch of noise when she's screaming that, you know, he tells her, get out, save yourself, it's too late for me. And she's like, no, 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 and making all kinds of noise. Dumbest trope in a horror movie. Um, I, I get the emotion and everything, but there's there seems to me that there would be this sense of self-preservation above all things, above the panic, the shock, the sadness, the um, helplessness there would be that sense of self-preservation where you wouldn't be just making a bunch of noise in the killer's house when he has just dismembered half of your boyfriend's body or peeled half of his skin off his face or whatever. I, I That's where horror movies tend to lose me is in the little details like that. Um, I've talked about my feelings on the Poltergeist remake. I don't need to rehash that. But it goes along that same line. Like you are not going to find your friend and then make a bunch of noise. You're going to do everything you can to quietly escape but they're just not written that way. So I, I'm usually waiting for the killer to hear them. And then the, then the next part that doesn't make sense is the fact that the killer doesn't hear them somehow. So, you know, those are the kind of things that just take me out of the movie a little bit. But what's going to bring me right back in is that soundtrack. So here is when Chrissy finds Eric.
this music is just so beautiful and dramatic. I mean, the strings along with these uh, ethereal sounds that we're hearing blended together is just so amazing. It, it really brings out the emotion of the helplessness of Chrissy, the sadness and, and sorrow that she's feeling in the moment of still trying to find a way to, to get somehow out of this house into safety, but that I, I know I'm going to regret leaving Eric here, even though there's nothing I can do for him. I can't watch him go through any more. Um, it, it's such a difficult position to be in, if you think about it from the character's perspective. But at some point, you know, that that idea that it's too late, that there really is nothing you can do. And if you stay there, you're probably going to die. Uh, it has to kick in, you know, and um, it, it certainly, you know, will it, with every character in a horror movie. But Man, it's got to be so hard. If you think of yourself in a real life position like that, I can't even imagine what what you would do, how you would react. So while it's easy for me to say characters should do this or that, you know, I don't know what the reality of that situation would actually be. I'm sure it's different for everybody, but it, it just seems to me like the this, this self-preservation thing would take more um, precedence than anything else. So poor, poor Chrissy, she can't do anything to help Eric. It's pretty much over for him. Um, he's he's just about done for. And here comes Leatherface to finish him off with Eric's death. I just love the gentle swell of those gongs in there. They add such a, a layer of intensity to to the piece. Um, you know, this is a very short piece. I didn't play the whole thing for you. That's why this clip is so short. But, you know, it's over for Eric. He's done. We uh, we we don't need to have any more empathy from him because he's he ceased to exist. Now he's just a body, a corpse laying there on Leatherface's table. But, you know, it's time for Leatherface to make a new mask. And he's going to make one out of Eric's face here in Face Removal. What I find really interesting about this scene and this particular piece is that you're really kind of, you're not looking through Leatherface's eyes, but you're basically experiencing it as him because uh, there's no one else there. Everyone else is dead. And while poor Eric is about to get uh, a facelift, it's really a matter of 
the feeling that this shouldn't be happening, but also a little bit of sort of entitlement. It feels like, you know, uh, entitlement, empowerment, maybe Um, there's something hidden in those sounds, in the strings and in the percussion that say, I am in control. I deserve to do this. Uh, It's my right to do this to people. And you really kind of almost feel for Leatherface because you know that he hasn't had uh, any kind of good education or uh, proper upbringing or even an understanding of right and wrong. This is just the thing you do. You have somebody that's dead, you cut their face off and you wear it. That's how life works. And even though no one around him is doing that, um, they all have their own issues anyway. But that's just his thing. That's his perception of the way that uh, things proceed. So it's it's fascinating that you kind of almost feel that empowerment with him as he's doing it, that that control, that um, that surety that he has, that he's just doing what he's supposed to do. It's very bizarre. And I think that Steve did a great job portraying that emotion in the song. Um, just a very, very powerful piece. And now we're headed to what was certainly uh, done as a nod to the original film. We're heading into the dinner sequence. And, you know, for those of you that remember the uh, the original, uh, very similar here, we're introduced to Grandpa, who is, you know, at least 170 and for some uh, amazing reason still has a pulse. I'm not sure how strong it is. It's pretty weak at this point. You know, he's not a lot he could do. Um, but uh, he's in the scene. They're at dinner. Our, uh, our poor Chrissy is pretty much helpless. You know, she's uh, secured to a chair, not sure what their intentions are at this point, but you know it's not good. So here is a little bit of dinner. So there's kind of a hazy coming to realization for her of what's going on, that she's trapped, she's secured to a chair, she's not getting anywhere, she's horrified by grandpa, she's met pretty much everybody else at this point, and it's just, uh, you know, a bad scene. I I remember stories uh, from the original how they actually used, like, uh, animal skin and, and stuff to make a lot of the props, and it just smelled horribly when they were doing the dinner scene. I would imagine by 2005, when they were shooting this, or 2006, whenever it was, that uh, they had come up with much better means for something like that. But this piece is really patient. It, again, throws back to the opening theme and uh, just kind of goes with the, the visual of her waking up and, you know, grasping everything that's going on and how hopeless her situation is. But she's still got some fight in her. And bless her heart, and she's going to do everything she can to get out of that house. But right now, it's not looking good. Um, Which brings us to the Meat Factory scene with a song called, well, Meat Factory.
Yes, back in the meat factory where it all started. And of course, our dear Chrissy doesn't know that Leatherface used to work here. He knows this area. She thinks that she's got him, you know, isolated, trapped. She's going to get away. And little does she know this is familiar ground for him. So uh, it's a pretty intense piece. You know, we're heading towards the showdown, the climax of the film. Well, you really don't because you don't know how long the film is unless you look. But, uh, you know, in theaters, wherever uh, this is heading towards that, and it's it's going to get intense. It just has to get intense. So uh, here, of course, there's that last minute. Oh, wow. I caught up with somebody from my original group. I thought everyone was dead. Oh, gee, I thought everyone was dead. Wow. We're both here. We can save each other and get out of here together. Oh, no, you can't because the movie will never let you do that ever. It doesn't happen. So uh, this is not going to go well for uh, our re- newly recovered Dean. Um, he, we last, uh, I can't remember in the movie where we last saw him, but as far as our talks in the soundtrack, he was the one that did the 10 push-ups. or I should, yeah, he actually did do the 10 pushups, but it didn't go well for him after that. So uh, Dean makes it out. Uh, they connect and they're, they're trying to escape now. And uh, it doesn't go well for Dean. Dean doesn't make it. And of course, our dear Chrissy does because it's the heroine and this is how horror movies work, at least the majority of them. So now we're going to follow Chrissy as she tries to get away. And um, well, that doesn't go so well for her either. But here's Dean's death on the track titled Dean's Death. See, that's the nice thing, too, is if you're, you know, if you're doing horror movies, you can come up with some really cool titles, but they usually just relate to what the scene is so that you remember where they go. One thing I really haven't talked about much is how the score can be used to enhance certain key moments. Uh, For example, when the pitchfork goes through somebody's chest and you see the spokes coming out of the front, you can hit some percussion or you can uh, do an effect on, you know, a flute or a, a violin or something like that. And you can really accent some of those moments as well, making the soundtrack even more intense, thus making the movie feel more intense. Kind of like if you were to watch Rocky, if you just heard punching bag uh, or, uh, you know, uh, the sound of a glove punching um, a piece of meat, it would have a certain intensity to it. So what they did is they actually enhanced that with additional sounds to make the impact sound so much bigger than it actually was on their faces and their chest and and stomach. Um, Really uh, powerful tool. It's You know, it, it could be considered sound design a lot of times in horror films, especially the composer will do those things. They'll just put accents on those moments, um, all under the director's direction, of course, you know, but, uh, but it's a very powerful tool to make the film more intense through the soundtrack, as well as the people that do the sound design. So uh, there's just a little interesting tidbit for you. So now, um, you know, Dean didn't make it, Chrissy didn't do much better. And it's pretty much the end now Leatherface is, uh, he's done. He's tired. Poor little guy's got to get some sleep. So he's taking his chainsaw and he's he's heading down the road back to his home, back to mama's house. 
And here is how that sounds, the epilogue of the score for the movie. I love those pizzicato strings in there, just giving it a finality. The story's over. Everyone's dead. Leatherface is tired. He's heading back home. He's walking down the road, chainsaw hanging from his arm, and it's done. You know, there's no one left to kill until the next batch of stupid teenagers stumbles upon his house, which happens because this is a prequel, so we know that more people come later. But it's such a powerful movie, great acting, uh, a great script for a horror movie, I have to say, except for, you know, the typical horror tropes that you don't seem to get away from very often, but very well done. Uh, Great acting. Obviously, I love the scores. It's one of my favorites and uh, fantastic job. I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. I know I had a lot to say about it. I covered basically an hour for this one soundtrack between the two episodes, but I thank you for joining me. I hope that you did enjoy it. Um, Share this with somebody if you are so inclined. Thank you to my friends over at Audionamics for helping this podcast sound as good as it does, because without instant dialogue cleaner, you would hear airplanes and children and dogs and all kinds of things that are in the area where my studio is. But Great, great album. Um, If you guys are a fan of horror music, go check it out. The links are in the show notes. It's actually still available. I thought it might be out of print by now, but it's not. So there are, and you know, and even if it is, there's always eBay and Discogs where you can find um, out of print music, but it's not out of print. So grab yourself a copy, play it at your Halloween party. That'd be a good place for sure. That'll freak people out. Have a great one, guys. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Cheers. (laughs) 